Would you open up your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4? We'll continue our series on the Gospel of Mark. We will be reading, um, starting in verse 35 through verse 41. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to grab a Bible from in front of you, and you can find Mark, chapter 4, on page 839. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. Let's continue to worship our God as we hear his word read and as we hear it preached. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we confess and we come to you this morning praising. Your word says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. And oh, Father, those words are so true. We do cry out this morning, none can compare with you. Your deeds are great and they are mighty. And we need them. But we also confess our sins to you. Your word says, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. We confess this morning, Father, so often as we approach your word, our hearts are far from you. And we ask for your mercy and your grace now. Would you incline our hearts to you? And there's good news. You are the God who gives people open ears. And we pray now as we approach your word this morning that you would... You would give us open ears, that you would dig us new ears, that you would clear out the clutter from our ear canals, that your word would penetrate in and shape our affections, that you would shape our desires. Father, we desire to hear your wondrous works and we, we desire to rejoice in them. And so we pray, do this work of heart surgery upon us, do this work of ear surgery in us. Father, we hope today in your spirit. We trust that your spirit will accompany your word and and work in us and through us. And so we pray, bless the preaching and teaching of your word. Oh, would you bless us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're looking at the stilling of the sea. 
And in order to set up this text, to set the table for this great story, I want to go back to the Old Testament and I want to tell a story. And the story comes from Psalm 106. And Psalm 106 tells a sad and repetitive story. There's a peculiar sadness that is in this psalm. And the psalmist, as he, as he goes along in this song, provides a detailed list of the, the mighty and merciful deeds of God towards his covenant people. He remembers how the Lord revealed his mighty and saving power, a power and might so great that at his rebuke, the sea became as dry like a desert. He remembers the, the salvation of the Lord in this psalm. He remembers how the Lord came and destroyed Pharaoh and his fleet of chariots, how he wiped away every enemy of Israel's. And the psalmist recalls the, the promise of the Lord, how the Lord faithfully brought the people of God through the wilderness, miraculously providing them water, bread, and meat to a land of promise, a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so Psalm 106 remembers the might, the power, the salvation of God and how the people of God tasted it in their mouths, were satiated with it in their bellies, saw it with their eyes and were surrounded with it by day and by night. But this testimony of God's goodness leads us to see the sadness that is found in this psalm. There's a sharp contrast between God of the covenant and the people of the covenant. God has shown grace and mercy and love towards these people. But how have they responded? Well, they've responded with stubbornness and dullness towards their God. In verse 6, the psalmist confesses, he says, Both we and our fathers sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. In verse 13, he goes on to admit, They soon forgot his works and they did not wait for his counsel. And even more and even worse, by the time you get to verse 21, the psalmist says, they forgot God, their Savior. And this is not only a sad story that Psalm 106 tells, but it is a repetitive story as well. When the psalmist confesses, both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness, he realizes that the stubbornness and dullness of heart did not belong to one generation of Israel, but it is a heart that would be characteristic of all the generations of Israel. And the psalmist traces this out for us in his song. Israel sinned while they were in Egypt. They murmured while they were waiting for the Lord to split the sea. They murmured then after the Lord split the sea. They rebelled in the camp. They rebelled when Moses received the law. They grumbled when they were hungry or when they were thirsty or when they were afraid. They rebelled before they entered the promised land and they rebelled after they entered the promised land. And essentially what the psalmist says throughout the psalm, point to me a time in Israel's history and I will come to you and I will show you, I will make, I will make bare their heart. What will you find in their heart? You will find this, this stubbornness, this dullness. And the psalmist realizes his own place in this story, this heart posture, this stubbornness, this dullness woven throughout the history of the people of God has infected his own heart. He doesn't stand aloof from this story, but this story that he tells about his people is his own story. He cries out, both we and our fathers have sinned. 
So what can be done for this people of Israel who are stubborn and dull? What can be done for this psalmist who confesses that his own heart is stubborn and dull? Well, the psalmist laments his and his people's sin, but he, he does so in light and in hope of the character of God. This prayer is not simply an exercise of self-flagellation, but he laments in order to, to cast himself upon the mercies of God. And in this psalm, he remembers the heart of his God. He bolsters himself in verse 1. And hear what the psalmist says. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And in light of this, in light of the character of God, the psalm ends not with despondence or with depression, but with hope. And we hear this great petition from the mouth of the psalmist as the, as the song becomes, comes to a close. He says, Save us, O Lord our God, and, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. The psalmist doesn't give up because of his sin, but he prays, Save us, O Lord our God. And what the psalmist is doing is he is longing for the return of the God of the Exodus. He longs to see the power and might of God, power so great as to rebuke the sea. He longs for the salvation of the Lord, a salvation that will destroy every enemy and oppressor. He longs for the fulfillment of the promise, and he encapsulates all of these longings into one simple short prayer. Save us, O Lord, our God. Save us. And this prayer from Psalm 106, it echoes across the scriptures. And if you have sensitive ears when you're reading the Old Testament, you can hear it in every part of the Old Testament canon. You can hear it in the law. You can hear it in the prophets. You can hear it in the writings. Save us, O Lord, our God. And what this prayer is saying is that divine intervention is needed. Divine intervention is the only solution for the plight of the people of God. Only God can fix these stubborn and dull hearts. And divine intervention is what the Gospel of Mark announces. Divine intervention is what the Gospel of Mark is all about. Mark reveals the Gospel of God. He tells us the news concerning God and what God has done, what He's actually done in history. And the acts of God, the saving works of God, are littered across the first four chapters of Mark. We can just remember these events. Satan, the great adversary of the people of God, he has been bound by the, he has been bound. We go to the demons and the unclean spirits which harass the people of God and they have been cast out. Sin, the great debt that hangs upon the shoulders of men has been forgiven. Sickness has been healed and cast aside. Even more, a new people have been gathered and formed. God is gathering a new people, a people with Soft hearts. And so with certainty, we can say that the God of the Exodus has returned. The message rings true. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. But we can ask, how has this God come? Where is the God of the Exodus in the pages of Mark? What does the God of the Exodus look like? And all of these events that we just listed, the binding of Satan, the expulsion of demons and unclean spirits, the forgiveness of sins, the healing of sick humans, the gathering of a, a new people, the formation of a new Israel, have come through an unlikely character. 
a man who comes from Nazareth of Galilee. And Mark points us to him throughout this gospel, and he reveals this man's name from Galilee. Chapter 1, verse 1. He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And Mark, through these events, carefully gives us insight as, what, as to what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. Jesus and the God of the Exodus do the same things. They speak in the same manner. They share the same power. They share the same attributes. And Mark is driving us towards this great destination. He is making this great point. This Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee is no ordinary man, but he is God himself. He is the God of Israel. And Mark teaches us, if we're carefully listening to the story that he tells, that when you have seen this Jesus in the pages of Mark, you've actually seen the God of Israel. But there's more for us to hear, to see than just that. Psalm 106 ends with this plea. Save us, O Lord, our God. And we hear a similar cry in our passage this morning from the mouths of the disciples. In verse 38, they, they cry out, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Mark's point in telling the story to us in Mark chapter 4 is not simply to reveal that Jesus is God, but to reveal this. Jesus is the God who saves. He is the God of the exodus. He is the God who acts for the sake of his people, who will deliver his people safely from every peril, whether that be demons or death or creation itself. This Jesus is the God who saves And so the psalmist cries out, save us, O Lord, our God. And Mark carefully writes in answer. He shows us the long-awaited answer, and it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark works through this story, this sea story, to bolster our faith in this Jesus we meet. The story in Mark chapter 4 announces the steadfast love of the Lord has not grown cold. It announces that this God has not forgotten his promises. It announces that this God is yet mighty to save his people from all things. And as we look carefully this morning at this sea story, we will notice that Mark gives us three potent symbols to encourage us in our faith. And we'll divide up our text in three pieces, three symbols, and look at it that way. And so the first symbol that we want to take notice of is this, God in a boat. So chapter 4, verse 1 sets the stage for our text. Jesus was beside the sea, and because of the size and the eagerness of the crowds, Jesus got into a boat. And Jesus was in the boat, and he was teaching the crowds, and the crowds were up on the seashore. The pulpit was Jesus' boat, and there in the boat, Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. And he taught about the kingdom of God through parables. He said the kingdom of God is like. And after he finished his preaching, Jesus naturally makes use of the boat in the previous vocation of his disciples. We remember who these disciples are. Most of them are fishermen. And so he uses the boat and the fishermen to escape the crowds. Verse 35, Jesus gives this command. Let us go across to the other side. But of course... This cannot be an ordinary boat trip across the sea. If it was an ordinary boat trip across the sea, it wouldn't have been written down for us. There has to be some kind of tension in it. And so verse 37 records the tension. 
And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. And so this story that Mark is telling takes a quick turn towards the dramatic. No longer are we in the classroom hearing Jesus' parables and teaching. No longer are we in the courtroom where Jesus is disputing back and forth with the scribes. But now we're on the sea, and nature has unleashed its fury upon this small boat. And so the waves assault the boat, and the boat takes on water. And the storm is so bad that even these experienced fishermen, men who made their living on the sea, men who fished it and worked it, cried out in light of certain death, we are perishing. And it's here that we need to pause and let this situation settle in upon us. The storm, the sea, the waves, the wind, the water, the fear, certain death. And in the midst of all of these things, in the midst of all of this chaos, is Jesus. He is with his disciples in the storm. He is in the boat that is filling with water. He is in the boat smashed by the waves. He is in the midst of the disciples' fear. He is caught up in their peril. Jesus is with his people. The Son of God is in the boat. We should not let these details slip us by because Mark is giving us a comforting truth. The Son of God got into the boat. The Son of God has drawn near and experienced his people's sufferings, and we see it here narrated. The Son of God got into the boat. And this point that Mark makes here is not peculiar to our passage, but it is a theme that Mark has woven carefully throughout the entire gospel story. If we go back to chapter 1, we can remember this story about Jesus. Jesus shows up, and where do we find him? Well, we find him in the Jordan River, and who is there? Well, great crowds are there, and what are they doing? Well, they're confessing their sins. And Jesus goes down into the muddy river, and he stands with these sinners. He stands with them in the water, and then he takes on the same baptism that the rest of these sinners are taking. In all of these scenes in the early chapters of Mark's gospel, in chapter 1, Jesus' baptism, in chapter 4, Jesus in the boat, prepare us for a greater identification. They prepare us for a scene where Jesus does not simply suffer with his people, but a great scene where Jesus will suffer for his people. A scene where Jesus will undertake the judgment of God on their behalf. A scene where Jesus fills out the prophecies of Isaiah Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. A scene that Jesus himself explains, a scene of radical identification with the people of God. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the great place taker. And this morning, the story of Psalm 106 does not stand far from us. We can rightly take up the psalmist's confessions and make them our own. We can sing with the psalmist. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. And even more, we can pray with the psalmist. Save us, O Lord, our God. And here we are confronted with gospel hope this morning. 
What do we see? God got into the boat. The God of the Exodus has come. He has taken to himself a human body. He shares in our flesh and blood. And even more, the God of the Exodus has not stood far from us in our sinful and helpless condition. He stood in the river. He stood in the boat. And he was crucified to a cross. He has experienced our troubles. He has shared our griefs. And he intimately knows our burdens. God has gotten into the boat. And the symbol cries out, take refuge. Take refuge in this God who got into the boat. Second symbol that Mark leads us to see is this God asleep. And while the storm is raging and the wind is howling, while the boat is rocked violently and fills with water, Jesus' demeanor stands in stark contrast to the chaos all around him. Jesus is in a complete state of peace and rest. Verse 38 records these amazing words. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And as we think about the context of this passage within the Gospel of Mark, there is a good reason for Jesus' weariness and his need for sleep. Jesus has been hard at work ministering to the crowds, constantly exerting his energy, preaching sermon after sermon, going town to town, from sunrise to sunset, healing the sick and casting out demons, showing mercy and kindness to the people of the land, giving constant instruction to his small nucleus of disciples, even debating with the hostile scribes. In his ministry, according to chapter 3, verse 30, had even impeded his eating of regular meals. The crowds were pushing upon Jesus. And so it doesn't take too much work to imagine the weariness of Jesus. His body is simply done. His energy is gone. A man must sleep. And so he, he falls asleep as they go off. But Mark has written this story about Jesus for a specific purpose. And I don't think Mark has written this story about Jesus for us to give sympathy to Jesus' grueling work schedule. Rather, he has written this story so that we might know and rejoice in the gospel of God. And if we gaze with eyes of faith this morning, if we look closely at this text, we will not just see a weary and tired man, but a beautiful and comforting picture of our Savior. With the world literally dismantling around him, chaos with fear and, and, and panic, with water rushing into the boat, with men fearing for their lives, here's Jesus, perfectly asleep. He is at peace and perfect rest. And it's like Mark is taking a hold of us here and he's, he's drawing us. He's saying, come look closely at this text. What do you see? Well, he shows us this. The one who made the earth and all that is in it is not threatened by his creation. He sleeps. Jesus sleeps through the howling winds. The one who said to the sea in the book of Job, you may come this far, but no farther. Here your proud ways must stop. He is not anxious about his life, but he sleeps in the sea's roaring presence. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, as Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, does not fret in the times of trouble, but he sleeps in utter confidence. And the symbol of Jesus asleep is utterly consistent with what we see of Jesus throughout the, throughout the, the gospel story. Jesus doesn't fret in the presence of the scribes as they debate him and as they plot his death. 
Jesus doesn't fret when he's faced with the cross. He does not waver. Rather, he prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. Even in the presence of death, as his captors draw near, Jesus plunges onward in confidence. He sounds like a military commander and says, let us make our charge now. And he looks to his disciples and he says to them, rise, let us be going. See, my captor is at hand. I am advancing. And Mark gives good news to a storm-tossed people like us. We are easily overcome by our fears and our anxieties. We are like the disciples in this storm, anxious and fearful. But while we are weak, we have a Savior who is faithful and strong. A Savior who has a will that does not bend. A Savior who has courage that does not melt. A Savior whose fortitude does not fly away. So what are we to do with this symbol that Mark gives us? God asleep in a boat. Well, Psalm 61 helps us apply this second symbol to our hearts. In Psalm 61, David is writing this psalm, and David's clearly in trouble. He's full of anxiety and, and fear. And so in his fear and anxiety, he, he goes to God and he prays this prayer. He says, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. And David helps us make sense of this symbol. The symbol cries out to us, take refuge in the God who sleeps. Lead me to the Jesus that sleeps in the midst of the storm. Lead me to this Jesus whose whose confidence never wavers. Lead me to this Jesus whose courage never melts. Lead me to this Jesus whose will never bends. Lead me to this Jesus whose fortitude never flies away. Lead me to this Jesus. David helps us. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. And here in Mark chapter 4, we have a sturdy rock to place our feet upon. A Jesus who does not waver. A Jesus who does not fear, but can sleep in the storm. This brings us to a third symbol. God awake. The disciples are not impressed with Jesus' behavior during the storm. His sleeping does not encourage their faith. Rather, in irritation and panic, they come to Jesus in verse 38. In verse 38 records, And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are are perishing? And according to the disciples, Jesus' behavior in the midst of this storm doesn't make sense. Even more, it's foolish. Who sleeps in the midst of a great storm? But Jesus is full of mercy and grace, and he doesn't chafe at the attitude of his disciples, but he responds in verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. What precious words. Jesus' response is, is powerful here. It's effectual. Jesus, as we have already seen in the Gospel of Mark, does not need to, to, need to pray to conjure up power. He doesn't need to look to someone else to conjure up power, but by his word he rules. By his word he rules over demons. 
By his word, he rules over sickness. By his word, he rules over the hearts of men. And here in Mark chapter 4, we see by his word, he rules even over the sea and the wind. Mark draws out a profound Christological point. He's telling us something about Jesus, who Jesus is. And as the disciples question, so must we question. Verse 41. And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this? As we look into the sea, we, into, this, into, the, into the story, we can know who this Jesus is. The sea remembers this voice and the winds recognize his call. For this is the voice who created and controlled the waters on the second and third days of creation. This is the voice of whom John says in chapter 1 of his gospel. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Disciples ask, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the only appropriate answer that can be given is a staggering claim that this Jesus of Nazareth, this man who walks and talks and eats and sleeps and gets tired, is the God of Israel. This Jesus does what only God can do. He controls the sea and the wind with his, with his word. And Mark reveals to us, when you have seen this Jesus, you have seen the God of Israel. But we have to pause here and ask, what does this have to do with the gospel? How is this fact good news for us? How does this point respond to the cry of Psalm 106? Save us, O Lord, our God. We have to be clear this morning. While these facts before us, Jesus is God. He controls the the wind and the sea with just his word. Though these facts are integral to the gospel, these facts are in and of themselves not good news. This is only half of the point that Mark intends to make. We're only halfway there. Jesus is not merely putting on a show on the Sea of Galilee like a show of fireworks. He's not like an adolescent who whips out his muscles and shows them off to his, his friends. Rather, the stilling of the sea is a potent symbol that the long-awaited salvation of God is afoot. It has drawn near. Even more, it is a potent symbol that the God of the Exodus has arrived in Jesus to save a people for himself. And Mark, as an author, expects us to know our Bibles. And we've made this point again and again as we've moved throughout Mark. And the significance of the stilling of the sea jumps off the page when we read it in light of the Old Testament. In a specific prayer in the Old Testament, Isaiah 51, verses 9 through 11. In Isaiah 51, Israel is in distress. The land of promise has become a wilderness. The land that was to be a a land flowing with milk and honey is now deserted. A people who are called to be holy to God are full of sins and their their sins are stacked high to the sky and their iniquities stink. These people who are called to serve the Lord and the Lord alone are now servants of foreigners. And out of this context, out of this misery and distress, we hear this prayer in Isaiah 51. And if we listen carefully, we will see the correspondence between this prayer and Mark chapter 4. Isaiah prays. Awake, 
Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What is Isaiah talking about in chapter 51? What was Israel looking for? What was Israel waiting for? They were looking for the salvation of their God, and this was not just any kind of salvation. They were looking for their God, the God of the Exodus, to draw near in might and strength, a great strength that dries up the seas, a great might that stills the waters. This was the kind of salvation they were hoping for. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And when we come to Mark chapter 4 and Jesus rises up in the face of the unruly sea and the howling winds and he speaks, peace be still, he announces not just his divinity, but he announces the glorious gospel of God. The God of strength and might has returned and he has come to save his people. The stilling of the sea reveals that this Jesus is the God who saves. He is the God of the exodus. And the stilling of the sea tells us that the prayer of Isaiah 51 has found an answer. God is awake. He is stilling the sea. He has come for his people. In Jesus' words this morning, they should build up our faith. In Jesus, the God of the Exodus is on the move. And nothing, no one, not Satan, not his demons, not sin, not guilt, not storms, not seas can thwart Jesus' purposes of grace. Sin is forgiven by his word. Satan and the demons are defeated by his word. Even the mighty sea and the howling winds are calmed by just his word. And Jesus rises up and he says, peace be still. And we as Jesus' people can reason with great confidence. We can take up the words of the Apostle Paul as our own this morning and sing in triumph. This Jesus is ours. This Savior is ours. And because he is ours, we can say this. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the symbol draws near to us and it proclaims, take comfort, take refuge in the God of Israel. Take refuge in this Jesus who rises up in the face of the storm and says, peace, be still. Nothing will stand in his way. Not sin, not demons, not death, not even creation itself. And Paul channels this confidence. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life or anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we can return to the sad and repetitive psalm, Psalm 106. Verse 6 says, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Verse 13 says, They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. Verse 21 says, They forgot God, their Savior. 
And these words of Psalm 106 do not just belong in ancient history. They're not just to be covered in dust, but they're to be our words as well. This psalm teaches us to lament our own sin. And we ourselves are caught up in this great story of stubbornness and dullness. And the psalm teaches us to confess our sins. We can say and we ought to say, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. But as we noted as we we began this morning, this is not the only work of this psalm. Lament and confession should not end in despair. Rather, the psalm leads us to look towards a Savior, a Savior who rules over the sea with his word, a Savior who is mighty and strong, a Savior who defeats every enemy, a Savior who deals with sin once and for all. And the the psalm leads us from confession to hope, to prayerful hope. And we can pray with the psalmist, Save us, O Lord, our God. As we cry out, save us, O Lord, our God, we are met with comforting news in the gospel of of Mark. We hear it, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus' words steady our hearts. The Lord, our God, has come. The God of the Exodus has arrived. He was at work in the pages of Mark. He's at work today. His saving deeds are before us. And Jesus draws near to us this morning as he drew near to his weary disciples who were tossed around in the storm. And he says to us, as he said to them, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Let's pray. Father, we pray, save us, O Lord, our God. We are a people who need salvation day to day. We need your salvation, and we take comfort in your Son, the Son of God. He has come, he has stilled the waves, and nothing, not anything, will stand in his way. His purposes of grace will be accomplished. And so, Father, we pray this morning, would you give us ears to hear Would you place these symbols in our hearts? Would you strengthen our faith? Would you give us faith today in Jesus, the Son of God? We pray this in his glorious name. Amen.